Hello and welcome back to C-Suite Conversations, Franklin Covey's newest weekly podcast, releasing every Thursday on audio and video. I'm your host, Scott Miller. You may recognize me as the host of Franklin Covey's other podcast on leadership with Scott Miller, now the world's largest weekly leadership podcast, airing twicely on Tuesdays and Fridays. Yes, Franklin Covey now has three weekly podcasts. We're delighted that you've chosen to join us. Our guest today is the Jason Jaggard, he is the co-founder and CEO of Novus Global, in many ways an emerging expert and thought leader on the topic of leadership. In fact, amongst his many writings and podcast interviews as a host and as a guest, he's come up with 10 skills that he thinks all leaders should have, which after nearly 30 years, myself in the leadership business, I think are profound and hyper relevant. So today we're going to walk through each of those 10 in a bit of a speed round. He's known for a focus on what he calls sort of meta producers that are different than just, you might say, high performance producers. We'll talk about that in our discussion today. Jason, welcome to C-Suite Conversations. Scott, it's great to be here. You are fantastic already. Thanks for having me. Off air, we talked about how you are on the cusp of soon proposing to your fiance, no problem, this won't release to hijack that. Your proposal hopefully will happen successfully prior to this podcast. Tell us how you expect that to go this week. Well, I hope she says yes. So otherwise this will be a very interesting podcast to drop. Now you've done a bit of pre-screening on this. You're feeling pretty confident, right? I am feeling fairly confident, but you never know. Did she pick out the ring? Absolutely not. No, I worked with the whole team to customize. Oh, bad, bad, bad. Major mistake. You always have your fiance pick out the ring. Yeah, yeah we'll anyway, see. good luck to you on that one. Okay, first Perfect. I want to talk about what is Novus Global. Oh, yeah. Novus Global is, is an executive coaching firm. And so we work with hundreds of clients over the world, uh, ranging from CEOs of multi billion dollar companies to professional athletes to some of the most uh, famous entertainers on earth. And it's a lot of fun. Jason, you have what I might call a healthy obsession, fixation in a healthy way on the difference between high performers and what you call meta performers. You talk a lot about how you screen for, how you interview, how you coach, how you lead, how you build a culture where high performers actually, which is kind of the common phrase most of us use, we want to promote and identify our high performers, but you kind of take it to a different level. Would you take a few minutes and differentiate between what is the current, current paradigm and mindset of a high performer and how does that differentiate from what you term a meta performer? Yeah, well, generally speaking, everyone's level of performance is contingent on the kind of questions they ask. So you can imagine this like a pyramid. At the bottom, you have low performers, which are oftentimes asking, what's the least amount of work that I can do and still have my job or not get in trouble? Then you have uh, performers, and those are people who are just trying to do a good job. And then you have high performers, and oftentimes high performers are being driven by the question of, how can I be the best? And that's actually pretty fantastic. It's, it's a great question to ask, and having high performers is better than having you know, low performers or performers. But uh, recently, or actually several years ago, I was doing uh, some informal consulting with a Fortune 10 company, and we were talking about some of the challenges they were having. And they said, uh, well, the challenge that we have is we have a bunch of high performers. And I never heard about that before. I never heard anyone describe having high performers as a problem. And so I said, well, tell me what that's like. And, and some of your listeners can probably resonate with this if you have high-performing teams. And they said, well, there's a lot of people who are resistant to feedback. They are kind of becoming like divas. They feel like they've arrived sometimes. Uh, they are simultaneously bored and overwhelmed. And so we started asking the question together, well, what comes after high performance? And, and if you don't have an answer to that question, then all sorts of predictable problems will emerge. And so we coined the phrase meta-performance to articulate this idea of reinventing continually what high performance is for you. And so if high performers are asking the question, how can I be the best? 
meta performers are asking a fundamentally different question, which is what am I capable of? And that, that invites a whole new level of uh, inquiry, a whole new level of uh, habits to develop. It's a different kind of mental model that really begins to perpetually unleash, unleash high performance with uh, the folks that we work with. Jason, beautifully said, I want you to rewind for a moment because I've written, I've read some of your writings around how organizations would typically describe high performers. You mentioned the word diva. I also heard some things you wrote or, or, read, or uh, read some things that you wrote around how they appear later on in their career, how they maybe are different from when you hire them and when they are at their peak versus what it's like to lead them over time. Take your time and I want you to kind of reorient leaders into what it's like to be experiencing high performers in the hopes that they may say, yes, actually that does describe some of my high performers. How do I separate them and maybe even move them into a mindset of a meta performer? Yeah, well, I mean, one way of approaching this and I like the way that you frame that, Scott, in terms of people going on the journey. And, and one thing that is probably important to say is that uh, high-performance mindsets are not fixed. They're, they're dynamic. They're not static. So it's not as if someone is a high performer and then they're always a high performer or someone's a low performer and then they're always a low performer. We're really talking about not necessarily what they've accomplished in their careers. We really are talking about what the word that you use, which is a mindset and the person's capacity to choose a certain kind of mindset over other mindsets in any given time, whether they're in a meeting or whether they're out in the field doing sales or whether they're, you know, navigating an executive team and, and or, or working with a board, you know, and, and so what you want to do is you want to help people cultivate that mindset. But I want to kick it back to you just for a second because I don't necessarily feel like I'm answering your question. I think you have. You've actually written that a false growth mindset sounds like this. People are focused on past growth based on feelings, quote, I feel like I'm growing. They're haphazard about their growth. They don't necessarily have a plan. They're always looking um, for ways that they've already grown. They're kind of focused on, well, I've done that. I, I, I look at where I am and I've reached the summit metaphorically. And then you say, here is the mindset of a meta performer. They're focused on present and future growth based on results where they have proof that they're still growing. They have a plan for growth. They get excited when invited to grow. They look for new ways to grow. And then last, perhaps most interestingly, they see there is no summit. They don't see that they will ever have accomplished the ultimate growth. They're always on a path. And I think that's what most interestingly separates what you call meta performers from high performers is they probably have low egos. No, they may have high egos, but they have high self-awareness about their ego and always resetting it. Do you see it similarly? For sure. And, you know, a lot of that material that you're quoting there, we derived from Carol Dweck. And, you know, she's of very famous in terms yeah. of coining the, the phrase growth mindset. And she wrote this amazing article in The Atlantic where she said, you know, most people are misusing the idea of a, of a growth mindset. And usually, Scott, I think you've probably experienced this as you've, you know, done work with Franklin Covey for years. And, and some of the ideas there have gone through the zeitgeist. The more popular an idea is, probably the more watered down it is. And so she introduces this concept called the, the false or faux growth mindset, and you articulated it really well there. And it is this idea of, uh, to answer your question in terms of, in terms of ego, uh, a lot of times in our, in our firm we talk about you know, inviting people not to necessarily wage war on their ego, but to dance with it. Because there's that paradox there. There's the paradox of you need a certain degree of ego to lead, but then you also need to relate to your ego in a certain way to where it doesn't lead you. And that's where you, you start embracing the idea of meta performance in terms of uh, always understanding that there's not only a little bit more for you to grow, but actually a lot more for you to grow. 
I think uh, at Franklin Covey, obviously we focus on helping build a culture where you've got enormous leadership capability, where people build a culture where people choose to stay, where they choose to bring their best. And I also think, like all companies, we have high performers. We have middle performers. We have low performers, kind of the, the traditional you know, bell curve, if you will. But if, right. if, if I had, when I was a leader, maybe separated those high performers from what I thought they might be meta performers, I think I probably could have coached them into a higher level of contribution by naming them. I want you to become a meta performer and move beyond a high performer. I wish I would have heard that term prior uh, to meeting you. Yeah, I appreciate that. And that, you know, and you know this, your company probably knows this even better than ours. You know, mental models are so, so, so important. And everyone lives their lives according to the mental models that they have. And so we were excited to be able to hopefully add this contribution to the leadership, you know, genre yeah. to say, yeah. hey, you know, what if there was something beyond high performance? And what we've discovered, Scott, is once people upgrade their model, once people even know that there's an option beyond high performance, most people will lead themselves there. I was just doing uh, some some work in Phoenix with one of our, actually with the leader of Novus Global Sport, our sports division works with all of our athletes. And we were doing a day training together. And it was fascinating watching a team that at the beginning was seen as resistant and maybe even a little disempowered. And we just gave them the tools and we didn't have to necessarily like tell them to do anything. We didn't necessarily like quote coach them. We just offered them the tools. And then suddenly they started leading themselves and and I think, you know, for all of us who are in development work, that's, the, that's like the holy grail when you can just offer a tool to someone and, and they instinctively want it to use it. And I think that's because, to kind of put a period on this, I, I think most people want to grow most of the time. It's just that they were, we are unaware of the way our mental models actually sabotage our capacity to growth and get in the way of that. Am I right, Jason, that you've been writing a book? Is that accurate? Yeah. Tell us about it. Yeah, so it's, uh, well, when does this podcast drop, do you know? Uh, the day your book drops. When does when your book drop? <laughs> Great. It, it drops on July 18th, and it's right here. Very excited. Uh, and so it's called Beyond High Performance, what great coaches know about how the best get better. And so if I keep talking about it, that's what we're talking about. Uh, and we're really excited about it. And it's designed to answer the question, what do you do after you're already good at what you do, which is most of the people probably you work with and certainly all of our yeah. clients. Yeah, I love it. Look forward to uh, promoting your book as well. Okay, you oh, have thanks, written man. a list of 10 skills you think all leaders should have. I wouldn't typically take a podcast and drag our leaders through 10 skills, except I was riveted by some of the relevancy and thoughtfulness in these skills. So we're going to do just that but we're gonna call it a bit of a speed round. When I say speed okay, round, I mean speed round. I wanna take two to three minutes on each of these skills and invite our listeners and viewers to kind of sit back and absorb these. Maybe you choose to rate yourself on a scale of one to 10. One is, I need some help, and 10 is, although there is no summit, I'm on my way to 11, right? So I'll pitch the skill, and Jason, I want you to give me a couple of minutes educating our audience. The first Great. skill, you call it the ability to learn in a targeted way. Riff on that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, most people who consider themselves learners do so in an incredibly undisciplined way, and that would be myself included. You know, so if you've done like StrengthsFinder and things like that, and you get like learner input, intellection, ideation, all those types of things, it's like where you're, you're just a voracious absorber of information. And that's fantastic. And that's certainly better than not being a learner. But to, in order to survive in a rapidly changing environment, you have to be able to develop the discipline to learn in really targeted ways, which is knowing exactly what, what skills you don't have that are holding you back and then how are you spending your time and your calendar developing those skills in an intentional way so that you can get where you want to go? 
I love this concept. You write, a lot of people, including myself, often learn in an undisciplined way. Lazy leaders often say, I love to read. As a coach, you say, I don't care how much you love to read or how many conferences you go to. What I care about is whether you're learning in the specific ways required for you to succeed. Ask yourself, am I a professional learner or an amateur learner? Amateur learners learn recreationally. That's not bad. It's just that professional learners learn to get to the next level. Jason, if you were being very prescriptive around some things that professional learners have in common, what does that look like, sound like, feel like? Oh, professional learners? Well, I mean, in terms of what we're talking about here, uh, I would say they can explain, ex they can, they can ar exactly articulate the skill that is keeping them back and their intentional mm, strategy, what wow. they're doing day in, day out, week to week on how to overcome that. That's good for marriage. That's good marriage advice. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, good. That's good to know. Thank you. I'll take that with me. Thank you very much. I was much. speaking about me, sir, not about uh, you, but good right. luck to you. Okay. Number <laughs> two is the ability to unlearn. Yeah. Talk yeah. Well, I mean, mo yeah. So just as important it is to learn, you know, what the hardest thing to learn is that what you think you already know. And so in order to survive in a rapidly changing environment, I think that the principles or the habits you're pulling from is from an article I wrote uh, around how do, you pe how do people survive in the 21st century and lead in, the, in a high capacity. And uh, it's really difficult to learn new skills without letting go of old ones. In fact, the things that's keeping you from learning new skills are oftentimes things that you know that just aren't true. And so what, what you have to develop and learn how to identify the things uh, that you think are true that aren't true. So oftentimes we, we ask this question in our trainings. We say, hey, tell me what it's like being wrong. And uh, people say, well, it's embarrassing. It's, uh, you know, I feel ashamed. I feel like I, I missed the mark. I don't feel good. And then we always point out, well, that's actually not what it feels like being wrong. That's what it feels like discovering that you're wrong. Uh, the, the second before you discover that you're wrong, you weren't feeling any of those things. You were feeling great. And so what does it feel like being wrong before you discover that you're wrong is it actually feels like being right. And so for all of us, we have to struggle with this idea that being right feels or sorry, being wrong feels exactly like being right. And so then we have to get curious and go on this journey to discover where are we wrong that we don't realize that we're wrong. Jason, hold your book back up for the camera and reread the title and the tagline for us again. You bet. It's Beyond High Performance, What Great Coaches Know About How the Best Get Better. This book is going to be superb if you're writing in that book is like you're writing elsewhere because what you wrote about skill number two, the ability to learn is the following. Leaders have to unlearn. And the hardest thing for people to unlearn is that, is, is that about which they were most certain. The leader of the future will have to get used to and even enjoy unlearning things. In politics, it's called flip-flopping. Everywhere else, it's called growth. We should celebrate leaders who are able to say, quote, I was wrong, end quote. We need to make saying, Quote, we were wrong before, and here's what I'm going to do to fix it, end quote. This is the new evidence of great leadership. Isn't that true? Doesn't everyone crave the sales director or the COO or the CEO standing up at the town hall and saying, we were wrong? Yeah. That strategy well, failed. This operations process crushed you, but that rarely happens. But when that does happen... Everyone in the audience says, oh my gosh, it's like a breath of fresh air. They're like, we commit to this person. Why is it so rare? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, 
one of the reasons why it's so rare is because uh, cultures punish people for saying it out loud. You know, I was uh, recently around Ed Catmull, and you know, he wrote the New York Times bestselling uh, Creativity Inc. He was the founder of co-founder of Pixar and and Disney, and he was the president of Disney Animation for about ten years. And I've never been around him when he hasn't said he goes at any given moment. I have one foundational assumption, which is I'm radically wrong about something, and I have no idea what it is. And you know, he says that privately in teams and things. And that's kind of his modus operandi. But the reality is, when you say that out loud uh, in certain cultures, that is the one thing that you are not allowed to say. Some cultures, uh, I mean, that by teams and societies, and particularly in the political arena, we punish people uh, for being wrong, and we we uh, are, there's like no forgiveness for being wrong. And the less forgiving a society is, the more you'll create a culture where people will never admit that they're wrong. And on the one hand, it creates a sense of certainty, which I suppose is positive. But on the other hand, it really diminishes learning. The, the more an organization or a team or a culture can become comfortable with their leaders acknowledging their errors, the faster that, that organization or society will grow and the faster it will progress. And we, 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 we bite off our own hand by creating societies where people are not allowed to make mistakes or admit that they're wrong without you know, having disproportionate amount of consequences for them. Skill number three, you name the ability to notice when you're drunk on being right. Yeah, yeah, we, we often say more than sex, more than heroin, the human brain likes to be right. And you know, that gets back to what I was mentioning earlier is, is people, it, it, it's a good thing. Like the human brain is wired to be right. We build mental models right now. I'm sitting on this chair. I didn't worry when I sat down on this chair that it was gonna break. I assumed that it wasn't gonna break and I was right. And you know, that, that our whole world is oriented around rightness. Uh, but oftentimes we're not aware of how that, that uh, habit is becoming a prison versus a roadmap. And so, like I said earlier, you know, it's important to get curious about the ways that we're potentially wrong. And when we're, you know, when, when, when my uh, girlfriend and I are fighting, sometimes I'm like, man, I'm, I'm so like the cortisol's there. All these drugs are pumping through your brain when you're fighting and you're defensive and you're antagonistic. And you are, you're like, you're drunk on being right. And at some point it becomes, it doesn't really become about listening anymore. It doesn't become about connecting anymore. It certainly doesn't become about problem solving anymore. It is about just entrenching yourself and whatever it is and being, trying to be right about something. You know, Scott, and I don't know if you've ever had that moment when you're arguing with someone and you can't even, your arguments are creating new arguments and every new thing that a person says just begets a new argument. And at some point you're, you're 15 verticals away from the original thing that you're arguing about. And that's one of the shirt of the telltale signs that, uh, that you're drunk on being right and you're not trying to solve the problem. And the faster leaders can, can sober up, uh, the faster they can solve problems and the faster they can win. Jason, good news for you. That only happens when you're dating. That never happens in marriage. So it's That's what right. I've heard. It's yeah, that's okay. fantastic. Yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah. You, you write, <laughs> my wife is going to love this interview to weaponize it on me. <laughs> you write, the human brain craves being right, which isn't entirely bad, but when we're in its grip and not aware that it's leading us will create enemies unnecessarily and create false solutions that lead us away from a better future. Being right is a useful tool, but often it becomes a blinder to other possibilities. Beautifully said. You gotta write a book. Number four, <laughs> the ability to persuade without condemning. Yeah, this this these all flow together in some ways or like build on each other. You know, one of it's interesting when you're trying to persuade somebody. There's a there's a 
uh, base level belief that I'm right and you're wrong, and that's why I'm trying to persuade you. And by the way, that's fine. Like I said, it's totally okay to believe that people are wrong or inaccurate or missing something. Uh, a new a new discipline I've attempted to use in my own self rhetoric and, and and with our teams is instead of saying that I disagree with somebody or instead of saying hey you're wrong I'll say hey I love where you're coming from but I think that idea might be like incomplete or I think that idea as good as it is might be missing something and can we search for a a larger picture of the idea that includes what you're saying but also includes new information and that's like a hack around trying to always be like a I'm right you're wrong strategy in terms of persuasion. Uh, because people can tell when you are uh, condemning them. People can tell and feel when you are implying not only the disagreement that you think that they're somehow bad or broken. And again, uh, the article that you're quoting from uh, was written in some ways around the divisive nature of, in some ways, companies, but certainly in our society, certainly American society right now, which where there, you, you have to find ways of inviting your opposition uh, into a new solution without insulting them or condemning them or saying it somehow that they're irreparably broken or worse saying that they're evil that word is getting thrown around more and more and uh, at least in my experience in my interpersonal relationships with our teams you know uh, it, you don't get very far if the reason why you think someone doesn't agree with you is because they're evil uh, it's much better to begin with a base assumption that's saying well maybe they're not seeing what i'm seeing and and maybe i'm not seeing what they're seeing and if we can find, find for some kind of synthesis then things will move forward faster Jason, I recently wrote a book about mentorship, and one of the questions I'm often asked is talk about reverse mentorship. And I say, well, there's no such thing. It doesn't exist. It's called mentorship. Your age is irrelevant to whether or not you can mentor someone. So because you are younger than me, I'm going to have you mentor me right now. Okay. I often say that I have 30 years of leadership experience, which we know probably means I have one year repeated 29 times. So I want <laughs> you to coach me on something. I have a colleague that works for me. And I like this person. Uh, this person is a very positive person, hard worker. They're constantly stretching their skill set. I like them a lot. Personality-wise, we're a little bit different. But generally, I'm really fond of this person interpersonally. And I find that in an attempt to always be growing their skill set, growing their self-awareness, hopefully not an attempt to become me, but probably subconsciously I'm turning everybody into me. I'm a dad. Yeah, right. I, I find myself that I'm often condemning them, right? I think my... My, my um, call out to praise ratio is like nine to one. <laughs> and I, I, that weighs on me, but I also don't want it to be disingenuous where I always feel what Dr. Covey would say was the sandwich, right? Say something nice, jab him in the middle, say something nice. I don't want to do that either. What I want to do is make sure two things happen, that they feel valued and mm -hmm. thus know that I value them and see all the great work they do and constantly relentlessly be challenging them, growing their skills, tightening their deliverables, tightening their brand. But I think it comes, apart, it comes across as me condemning them. Any coaching for me? I mean, well, I, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll leave the coaching for another time, but I can give you some advice. <laughs> there, are, there, are, uh, there, there are two tools I might invite you to try on. Uh, and you know, I think Franklin Covey deals in some ontological frameworks and like way of being. Uh, people can tell when you're giving them feedback from a place of critique versus a place of advocacy. You know, mm -hmm. and so, so in our book, we have a whole chapter on love, and which surprised a lot of people because most people don't associate love necessarily with work. And we think that it is. Obviously, it's not you know, candles and chocolates and promises you don't intend to keep, uh, but it is this idea of we define love in the book as fierce advocacy. And so uh, an exercise that we have is 
in, inviting people to notice if they're coming from a place of forness or fromness. And we, we borrow this from Jeff Henderson, who's a, another great leader, and he's got a book called Know What You're For. And in it, it talks about, hey, you, you can probably say anything to anyone if they sense that you're coming from a place of forness, a place of advocacy, versus trying to take from them or control them or trying to get them to do something they don't want to do. And so, uh, you know, Scott, I would invite you, and there's an exercise actually, there's an exercise where you can sit down and before you have a conversation with this person who sounds like they're doing great, but there's a lot of opportunity for growth, uh, to write down all the things that you want for them. Mm. You know, I want them, so if you want, we can play. Like Scott, like what are some things that you want for this particular leader? Like your heart is like, man, if I could puppet master them, this is what I just would love for their life to look like for, for them to accomplish in their careers. I want them to earn more money. I want them yeah. to be more confident. I want them to have less fear. I want them to uh, enjoy their professional contribution. I want them to have financial independence. I want them to see their skills as limitless. Yeah, so even as you talk about that, hopefully what's happening in your brain is gonna start releasing different chemicals, especially with some of those things like, I would love for them to be you know, financially independent, succeed, uh, you know, to, to experience more joy, have more fun, enjoying the contribution that they're making. And the, generally speaking, Scott, the more rooted a person stays in that, when you have the meeting, mm. you, it's, it's not a, you know, what, I don't know if you guys swear on the podcast, but like a crap sandwich or whatever. Um, it is like a, hey, we're having this conversation because I really believe in you and I want to see you be successful. And I want, I want you to, to have all your financial dreams come true. And so that's where this is coming from. And nine times out of 10, that will, a person may not agree with what you're saying. That's a whole other conversation. But just that, that spirit decor, like that, that emotional energy, the, the way that your, your synapses are firing, like the mirror neurons will do what they're supposed to do and they'll pick that up. And most of the time that will produce a better kind of conversation. The only caveat to that is if there's, already, there's like some damage done. And then there is like a time where you wanna invert the praise to challenge ratio to rebuild trust to where they can really sense that you're for them versus kind of being for them, but really not. Jason, we don't swear in this podcast, it's Franklin Covey. Okay, number five, the ability to master paradox. Speed round. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, this is one of my favorite ones. So one of my favorite quotes is, leadership is the art of mastering paradox. And in fact, in the book, we take it a step further. So, so oftentimes, there's, there's unidoxical thinking. And this is kind of the right versus wrong thinking is what typifies political discourse. It, what typifies a lot of meetings uh, is where I'm right, you're wrong. We're going to argue about it until one of us discovers the opposite. Paradox is your capacity to hold two contradictory thoughts at the same time in a way that creates synthesis. You know, so like, how do you be both, how do you dance with your ego in a way, like we mentioned earlier, that is both uh, uh, helpful in esteem building, but also malleable and, and humble? You know, that's a paradox. And then we actually add another phrase, which is called multidoxical thinking. And multidoxical thinking is where you're able to hold an ecosystem of paradoxes at the same time. And, you know, when you think about good parenting, or when you think about like running a good company, and I'm sure Franklin Covey has, you know, a set of core values, sure. whatever those core values are, they exist in tension and harmony. Good ones are going to exist in tension and harmony with each other. And so you're going to want to be able to find the paradox in each value and then be able to dance with them in tension and train your culture to dance with them in tension. And that'll create a much more healthy and malleable organization versus one that's, that's brittle and using values in a way that's weaponized versus in a way that's more something that we, where you can dance and move forward. This skill you just mentioned, the uh, ability to master paradox, you write a beautiful description. I want to read it for our listeners and viewers. This is the art of seeing two seemingly contradictory values and pulling them together, compassion and responsibility, the needs of the individual and the needs of the community, our desire for security and our desire for adventure, empathy and honesty, 
the leader of tomorrow will fight the temptation to pick one over the other and instead manage both, creating cultures that have value for all. Today's people swing wildly to one side or the other. The leader of tomorrow will have an appetite for wisdom, especially the part of wisdom that is hard for them to embrace. You're going to be a great parent. Let's go to number six. <laughs> the ability to dream outside of your own intuitive fence. Yeah, so in the book, we talk about this concept of uh, intuitive fence. And the reality is everybody has an intuition of what they're capable of. And almost always that intuition is wrong. And the way that you know this is when we do our trainings, we invite people to break into groups and we say, hey, uh, pick, tell me something that you, that you would like to have happen in your life in the next year that you think is impossible for you. And people go around and they think of things. And maybe it's like, you know, buy a second home or maybe it's, you know, earn a certain level of income or maybe it's take my family on this kind of vacation or maybe if it's even some kind of hobby, like, you know, to write a screenplay or whatever. And what's really interesting is that when people sh go around and share and maybe if you're listening to this, you can think about something that you want in the future that occurs to you as impossible. Uh, whenever anyone goes around and shares what it is that they want, the person who's listening to them instinctually wants to convince them that they're wrong. You know, so it's like, oh, you know, if only I could go on a longer vacation with my family next year. People listening be like, oh, you could totally do that. And th so there's this thing inside the human spirit where whenever we hear anybody tell us that something is impossible, we want to we want to challenge that. We want to invite them into a bigger story. And the inverse is also true. Whenever you're sharing something that you think is impossible to someone else and they try to convince you that you're wrong, you want to buttress it and defend it and convince them that they're right. And the reality is, is what story do you want to listen to? Do you want to, do you want to be, most people are trying to be right about something that they don't, they're trying to win an argument that they don't really want to win. And so uh, leaders of tomorrow have to understand that. They have to understand that they have an intuitive fence, that they have a, a, a imagination governor that tells them whether they realize it or not, what's possible and impossible. And that that governor is completely subjective. And you have to learn how to challenge your own intuition, you have to challenge your own intuitive fence so that you can really explore what you're capable of. Jason, this next one is actually why I invited you on the podcast. And I've uh, been questioning whether or not I see this accurately. Number seven is in fact, the ability to see the world how it actually works. Let me riff for a ah. second. Uh, yeah. I'm fortunate to have been married for 13 years to Stephanie, better educated than I am, wiser, more mature, acts like an adult. We, she really has four boys, right? Our three sons and myself. <laughs> and, yeah. and when we got married, we decided that Stephanie was going to forego a career, meaning she didn't want one. But she has a <laughs> career. It is raising our three sons. It is managing our home. It is really not with puffery. She's the COO of what we call Miller land, right? All the finances, all the bills, I mean, the scheduling, laundry. It's, 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 a, it's an enormous job. And one of my frustrations with Stephanie is I'll always say to her, hun, that isn't how the world works. That's not how it works. Here's how it really works. It might be with our handyman or it might be with the car detailer or the, or, or the power bill. And I, I'm always schooling her on how the world really works. Yeah. By the way, that never works out well for the relationship. And as I think about the previous one about our own intuitive fences, I wonder if I've just been jaded about how I think the world works or how I've created a world that works for me and I'm forcing her to think, no, 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 hun, that's naive. Here's how it works. You're welcome to um, tear me down on this one. Talk about <laughs> the ability to see how the world really works. 
Well, there's a few elements here, you know, so uh, I don't know if you know, know Yuval Harari, he wrote the book Sapiens and he, he talks about there's objective reality. That book kicked my ass, by the way. Oh yeah, it's it's incredible. Amazing. And, you know, that book's amazing. His sequel, Homo Deus, is very good. And then his, he's got a third book called 21 Lessons that. for the 21st Centuries. Oh, it's very good. Um, <laughs> it's, all three of those are great. I, 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 there's a few thinkers uh, who I try to read everything that they say or do. And Yuval is one of those. And Have you uh, read that Scott and, Miller guy stuff? Yeah, his good, his everything, everything it's, he says, it's just I dive in, just tear it apart, uh, and and honestly, like I am reading your book right now, the, the one on roles and mentorship, and I am loving it. Uh, I really am loving it. And I've talked to our coaches about it, and we're we're applying some things that we we've, we've learned from it, and so thank you for for doing that. Um, and and in regards to how life works, what's funny is, uh, whenever I try to teach someone else pejoratively how the world works, I'm betraying my own value for understanding how the world works, mm. right? Because I know that ex that you know, condescendingly, not that you're necessarily doing, I'm adding adjectives that you didn't use. But you know, if, if I condescend someone trying to explain how the world works, uh, that won't work. You know, so that's part of the understanding how the, way, how the world works. And the world does work a certain way. But the reason why I mentioned um, Harari was because, you know, objective reality is things are, you know, like gravity and things like that. And then you have subjective reality, which is my subjective experience. We want to become aware of that. A lot of leadership is understanding other people's subjective experience. And then there's intersubjective experience. And those are the things that work a certain way simply because we all agree that they do. You know, like money is a good example of that. Money, piece, a piece of paper is a piece of paper or ones and zeros in a bank account or we say are valuable just because everyone agrees that it is. If any given moment, we could all decide that paper was, the green paper with the you know, treasurer's secretary uh, signature on it uh, wasn't valuable anymore and it would cease to become valuable just because we decided that it was. And so part of this, and really what we're talking about is wisdom. And then by the way, another uh, Ray Dalio's book, Principles, is a fantastic kind of wrestling and exploration with just the mechanical wisdom of building the machine of teams and how do you make those work. And I think any leader who isn't constantly digging into how things actually work, how the team, not how, how, not how I'm, I wish my team worked, but how is our team actually working and what, what's working, what's not working, and especially, Scott, what are the hidden assumptions that a team has? What's, what are the hidden parts of the machinery that we either don't want to look at or don't know how to deal with or, or don't even know that's there because people aren't sharing about it? Whatever the hidden machinery is of how life actually works or how a team actually works, that's what's driving an organization or a team or a society. And leaders have to develop the skill set of ruthlessly being just black and white about what's working, what's not working, how are things actually working, and really trying to flashlight on the hidden machinations of how things are working so that they can re-engineer things to work the way they want them to. Jason, I'm looking forward to your book because I'm still stuck on number one about my ability to learn. Am I a professional learner or an amateur learner? <laughs> amateur learners yeah. learn recreationally. I've interviewed all these people you've talked about for Franklin Covey and I've had this wealth of knowledge yeah. and I feel like I need to become a more disciplined learner to put it to my own meta um, skill set. Okay, number eight, there's three more we're going to end. The ability to reflect without self-flattery. Yeah, yeah, well, and that mentioned, you know, I mentioned the brutal uh, self-assessment. You know, the, the most important machine to make sure is working is you. And, you know, most of the time we're not leading our lives, our lives are running us, you know, and so it, you have to learn how to, oftentimes, so recently I was working with a client and, uh, she was really struggling with some of the questions I was asking her because when I would ask her a question, 
everything was good. Everything was great. And, and all the problems were external. Anytime I asked her like a coaching question, it was like, well, that's because so-and-so won't do this and so-and-so won't do that. And, and I said, well, how might you be contributing to the situation? And she, it was almost like she didn't know how to answer it, you know, but honestly, and again, I think, you know, this anytime you've got a challenge or there's something happening externally, the most that you don't like, the most important question is how am I contributing to this thing that I don't like? And in order to do that, you have to do some self-reflection, but you also have to do it. You have to look for the non-flattering, non-rosy, non-spoonful of sugared uh, answers to those questions in order for you to actually deal with how you're operating. You know, and, and reality is as much as we don't want to condemn people, we do need to discern, especially what's going on inside of ourselves, the sometimes nefarious, sometimes less than flattering, sometimes less than noble uh, things that are, are driving us like selfishness or greed or you know, whatever else we want to do. And the more honest we can uh, disclose that to ourselves, but usually to another person like a professional, the faster that we can get that junk, uh, not completely out of our lives because it never goes away, but the more we can like manage that in a way rather than it managing us. Jason, I think you are a beautiful manifestation of the difference between being wise and being smart. I'm thoroughly enjoying listening to you on this oh. topic. You write Thanks, that leaders of the future have mastered the skill of understanding the less than noble impulses that are often present in our behavior. They'll be aware of when they're motivated by greed or lust or jealousy. Today, we're much better at ascribing vice to others, but many leaders struggle to ascribe those same vices to themselves. The leaders of the future will understand their darker impulses and develop strategies for dealing with them in the context of community. Here's the kicker. This will involve ancient skills like genuine non-advertised confession, forgiveness, and repentance before a leader's life blows up, not after. Let's land the plane. Yeah. Number nine, the ability to cultivate mo nobility, the ability to cultivate nobility in your heart and relationships. One minute on this and we'll go to number 10. Yeah, man, this is such a passion of mine. You know, nobility... Uh, so there, there's ancient Hebrew uh, proverbs that talk a lot about nobility, and that really has informed my life. There's an old uh, scripture, actually, that says, a noble man makes noble plans, and by noble deeds he stands. And uh, that, that's been a guiding principle for me imperfectly. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think, I think oftentimes we're afraid to talk about uh, aspirational morality and the, and the North Stars that we, of course, fail to accomplish uh, but nevertheless are worth going after. And I really believe that teams that openly talk about their desire to be moral, to be noble, um, some people call it virtuous, other people call it righteous. Uh, that's such a, a lost art and such a beautiful part of what it means to be alive. And the more we do that, the more we'll realize we fall short of it. And that's where the confession and the forgiveness and the repentance come in. But we, we need leaders who will hold up a North Star and says, as best I can tell, this is what it means to be a good person. And this is what I'm striving after. And of course, I'm going to fail, but I'm not going to not pretend this is what I'm going after because I think it's more important for me to say this is what we're going after than for me to pretend that we're not going after it and have the organization suffer because of it. Number 10 is the ability to coach and be coached. Yeah, well, you know, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? So, so I'm a coach and, you know, I represent on this call a, a community of coaches at Novus Global. And uh, we really believe... And you don't have to call I love that your book called it mentoring. You know, like 
who cares what you call it, whether it's coaching, whether it's mentoring, whether it's developmental friendship or developmental communities, uh, it doesn't matter. It, but, it, but what really does matter is your capacity to uh, put yourself under the tutelage of other people who know more than you or further down the road than you or who have a wide angle lens that you don't have and your capacity to invite others to do the same. And we're fierce advocates for creating coaching cultures in organizations and in families and teams. And, and you know, you and I both talked about our relationships, our personal, you know, like romantic relationships on this, in this conversation. And man, like the most important thing in life is relationships. And one of the most important additives to relationships is some kind of coaching or therapy or counseling or mentoring. And I just meet so many leaders who don't have good mentors and don't have good coaches in their lives. And it, it's, uh, we're all gonna die someday. And I wanna, I wanna leave it all out on the field and I want to make sure that I access, if LeBron James has like a team of coaches, I want as many people in my life also helping me grow. And I hope that your listeners want that as well. Jason Jaggard, co-founder, CEO of Novus Global. Your new book is releasing shortly titled Beyond High Performance, What Great Coaches Know About How the Best Get Better, releasing in July. An honor to have talk with you today, listen to you. Best of success. There's a wealth of knowledge in this podcast. I will bet many listeners and viewers are going to rewind this and listen to it a couple of times on Saturday runs or on the Peloton and start leading their high performers towards meta performance. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much, Scott. Have a great rest of your day. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation from the C-Suite. <laughs>